Welcome to this episode of The Rise After the Fall. I am Sands, my partner in crime, Pastor Sonny, but I am so excited to have our guest today, Pastor Maury Davis. He pastored an incredible church for so long, was one of the great heroes of my life, really a mentor from afar. One of the things I think that we fail to realize is that we can have mentors in our lives who we never even met. And so this man was a great mentor in my life for years and years, was really a benchmark for us as far as successful ministry. And then to find out that there was a fall before the rise, of course, it was pre-Christ. But I'm so excited, my friend, Pastor Maury Davis from Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> Hello, Pastor Sean. How are you doing today? Man, I'm great. I'm yeah. really great. It's yes, a, you are. It's a Monday. We had an incredible service with you yesterday. God blessed us. I think uh, your gentleman said we had about 100 people on the altar either giving their life to Christ yeah. or rededicating their life to Christ. And uh, that's what it's all about. It was amazing. We we haven't traditionally been a come to the front church. We've been a raise your hand in the seat kind of church. We don't, not that we have a problem with the walk to the front. I think in the beginning we stopped doing that because of time constraints. It's interesting the things that we start that we don't change even though our circumstances change. Mm -hmm. We started not doing that because we had multiple services on a Sunday morning and our, our turnaround time was so tight. And so we just started doing the response in the seat. And then we didn't even talk about whether or not we do that. And so at dinner last night, I had said that we don't do that. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm so, it was like you were so humble about it. And it was so incredible to see the courage of people. I think we underestimate people's courage in moments like that. Yeah. Most people underestimate other people's ability, their convictions, and their desires. Uh, once somebody has indicated, I realize I need a God moment, yeah. and whether it's salvation rededication, God intervention in a situation in their life, healing in their body. Uh, I'm broke. I'm going to go hungry this week. I need a God moment. Once somebody comes to that inner aha experience and they say, I'm willing to reach up, people that are willing to reach up will stand up. Mm. And there's something about standing up that kills your flesh. Yeah. And the crucifixion of the flesh is what releases the working of the spirit. And so to the degree that they crucify the flesh, they release the power of the Spirit of God in their life in a unique way. And they declare their faith. And you, 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 there was a scripture that you put on the board yesterday. I'm trying to remember what it was. And it was about doing the word. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people say, well, we don't talk about doing because God has already done. Yeah. Well, God did his part. Jesus said it is finished, but it wasn't finished. Peter and John and those guys had to go to the upper room. They had to go preach the gospel. Some of them had to give their lives. They're, what Jesus has done does not keep us from having a responsibility for what we're called to do. Yeah. And helping people start the doing, the obedience, the not being hearers only, but being doers of the word Yeah. Uh, is, is part of the formation of uh, that's like laying a baby down on a pallet and not helping them roll over uh, when they're getting big enough that they should be developing those strengths. You have to let them learn to roll over. You have to let them learn to crawl. You have to let them learn to walk. And letting a child learn to walk also means you have to let a child learn to fall. Yeah, that's really good. And and, and those are challenging things for parents because you're always worried about your kids getting hurt. So, you know, when you told me we want to make sure we have a good altar call, <laughs> 
Well, in my mind, That's an it. altar call is get your bottom out of the seat and get your heart to the altar. Yeah. And uh, and so I saw the people coming forward. I thought, this is awesome. I mean, uh, you know, I knew there were a lot of people. I didn't know there was about 100 in yeah. both services uh, together. Yeah. And, um, but I thought, this is awesome. And then when you told me that last night, here's, here's the truth for all the preachers that are going to be listening to this. I learned this from my friend, Dr. Sam Chan. You never know you're going to violate culture until after you violated it. Wow. And that's whether you're preaching in another country. Right. Uh, it's whether you're uh, in another language uh, or in another church. Mm-hmm. Uh, every church has a culture. It's not right or wrong. It's that church's culture. Right. And uh, you, when you said give an altar call, rather than asking you what you meant by that, I filtered it through my historic experience. Yeah, that's really good. And uh, and so the next time you have an old guy in here, you might want to bring him up to speed. <laughs> Or not, it was just such a great, I've, I've always been an overprotective parent. Maybe that's a pendulum swing because my parents were underprotective parents. Mm-hmm. And, and so my kids, I've always, uh, I would say now that they're 18 and 17, at times I feel like I've coddled them. And then, uh, for example, my, my son has been playing you know, football since he's little. We were living in Texas when he started playing. So, you know, they start- Put your almost, hand on your heart. Almost start at birth when you, Texas, God bless Texas. They start so early there. And so by the time we moved to Green Bay that he had just played so much football. But one of the things that I used to would do is is I would always tie his cleats. And then he never said one thing about it. And then we went to a football camp in like, it's either sixth or seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And I was fixing to tie his cleats for him. And there's all these other boys around. And he looked at me and said, you know, I know how to tie my own shoes, right? <laughs> and to me, I was serving him or helping him or doing so. It was really to make me feel better. And I think as an overprotective parent, sometimes that for me has led into ways that I have functioned as a pastor too, that sometimes I'm an overprotective pastor. And I think I take the wounds that I had in my Pentecostal journey. Mm-hmm. And then I want to protect people from those without realizing that I wasn't wounded by that encounter. I was wounded by whether it was the environment that it was fostered in or by the person who was fostering that environment. And so when you expose your people to things like that, all of a sudden it opens up a whole nother venue that they didn't even think about. And so to have even a series like this, when we first announced that we were going to do a series called The Rise After the Fall, and we were going to bring in a collection of people who who were recovered but had been wounded. Mm -hmm. Some of them, those wounds were Mm self-inflicted. And we had a couple of pastors who had had failures within their ministry. And then we had a couple of people who had had a failure before their ministry. And you were one of those people. And I I intentionally wanted to save you for last. I felt like, number one, you had the most shocking story before and after. I've always, uh, as a young guy in ministry, particularly when you're, you know, I started out in the Assemblies of God. One of the things about the Assemblies is that there are a handful of champions within that movement that you hear about. Your pastor, obviously, Pastor George was one of those people, Mm -hmm. but I never had the blessing to meet him. 
but you were one of those people. Like he was that to your generation, but you were that to mine. And everywhere I went, I heard about Maury Davis. And I'd always heard tidbits of your story. And so I had never heard it from the source. And so yesterday to have you in in our pulpit, it was like, I can't even describe it, such a moment for me. Like when you, you know, sometimes people meet their heroes and they're disappointed and that wasn't it for us. It was like we met, we all got to meet one of our heroes, one of the our fathers in the faith, and it was more than we expected. And so I thought, how great would it be for our friends? Some of our friends who will listen to this, they, they won't know you. Most people will, but some of them won't know you. So can you just tell us who is Maury Davis? Who were you before Jesus and... Obviously, you had pastored a church of tens of thousands of people, and how did that happen? Well, the church that I pastored only had 4,000, but if you add all the churches we started and put us all together, it's about 28,000 on a weekend, and not counting the churches in Kenya, the 2,000 tabernacles we were involved in building or raising money for. Good night. Uh, You know, I started out uh, unsaved, unchurched. Dad divorced mom. Stepdad was uh, somewhat abusive, uh, not sexually, but uh, we were always afraid he was going to just beat the snot out of us with his switch or the belt or whatever, that we could never please him. And uh, ended up becoming a drug addict. Uh, Went to a military academy for two years in Roswell, New Mexico. Came back to Dallas, discovered you can control the outside, but if there's not a transformation of the heart on the inside, the the trajectory of self-destruction doesn't stop. And I got back on drugs until at 18 years of age in January of 75, I weighed 133 pounds. I was a speed freak. And uh, you'd call me a meth addict today. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I ended up in the middle of a crime committing a horrible murder. And I was arrested, taking to the Irving City Jail. And my I called my parents and they sent an attorney out. And uh, he was the most famous criminal attorney in Dallas, Texas, and he was a heathen. He was a corrupt guy. Mm. And But in the middle of about five minutes of talking to me, when he realized they have a murder weapon, they have an eyewitness, you're done. And he brings out a Bible and tells me this incredible story of how Pastor George's church on a Sunday night, he has lost his wife and his children because he was shooting a gun in the house, and she was tired of the womanizing, the drinking, the drugs, just said, I can't live here anymore. And he went to a church, in a little Assembly of God church, Calvary Temple Church, in Irving, Texas, Dennis Brewer gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he shared with me how God had radically changed him, set him free from years of alcoholism and drug use, just totally no desire anymore, uh, brought his wife back, restored his marriage to what it should have been all those years that they had been married. They had five children. Mm. And um, then uh, how God filled him with the Holy Spirit, healed his wife cancer, and he was just a charismatic, uh, he was a charismatic, a product of the charismatic movement. Yeah. And so he was just hyper about my God can do anything. And he wanted me to pray. I wasn't ready to pray. And I wanted him to get me out of jail. And he didn't think I was ready yet. And subsequently, I went to the Dallas County Jail. And the experiences there beyond the detox of the drugs uh, brought me to a place of sobriety. Pastor George prayed over me that the demon of murder would be delivered out of my mind and my spirit. And then a young man by the name of Tommy Joe Wilson lived a godly life in front of me. And through a series of things going on, I came to Christ with him reading the Bible to me one night, and God radically changed my heart. I think one of the things that I didn't say in church, because I don't like to go there, is how messed up I was. You saw a videotape of a pastor asking me when I just got locked up, why did I do what I did? 
And I told him I didn't know what I was talking about. Very few people really believe that. <laughs> Very few. But in my initial interview with Dennis, he asked me, don't you care about the person you killed? I said, I didn't know him. Wow. He said, well, don't you feel like you would, would if you ran over a cat or a dog? And I said, Dennis, I like cats and dogs. Wow. I have no recollection of that. But since he recorded it, it's there. And so I was that messed up. And when Jesus came in, my life radically changed. Uh, I supernaturally received a 20-year sentence instead of the electric chair or life in prison. And so I went to prison with a 20-year sentence. And after eight and a half years of growing in Christ, studying the Word, uh, leading a Sunday school class, we had a prison revival. My Sunday school class went to 500 inmates. They moved me from one prison unit in Texas to another prison unit because I had too much influence. <laughs> and I was thinking, that's the influence you want, guys. I'm getting people saved. And uh, you built a you built a church. I'm using air quotes inside of a prison of 500 people, and then they they moved you like it was a denomination that needed you to. Oh yeah. my gosh! Yeah, and uh, so and so the last unit I went to was the win unit, and the chaplain every time a new inmate would come would make me an appointment. I'd, he'd set me up an appointment to go to the chapel, and I'd sit in his office, and he would tell him, "If you want to make it in this prison, you need to talk to this man right here." And they may make it physically, but if you don't have an encounter with God, what prison does to you and your soul, your cynicism, your anger, your loneliness, your insecurity, yeah. all of those things come out and create a broken human being that they're going to let out of prison Yeah, if they get out. And most inmates get out within two years. Very few people spend more than two years in prison. Wow. And uh, and most people don't realize that the majority of crimes are burglary, uh, stealing in a convenience store, yeah. uh purse snatching, uh, they're the minor crimes. Yeah. And here's one of the problems we don't understand in society. When you make a minor crime a major sentence, yep. minor crimes turn into, uh, it's the same sentence from burglarizing this house as shooting the person in the house. Yeah. Uh, they Anyway, that's a whole nother gig. So I got out of prison in 1983, and Pastor George said, okay, Davis, I told you you're going to come work for me. I said, what do I do? He said, Oh, you're just going to be with me for six months. And so he was a jogger. So every morning I had to meet him at his house about 5.30, and we went running 6.2 miles Monday <laughs> through Friday. And You uh, ran a 10K every, every day. Monday through Friday. <laughs> and if there was a 10K he wanted to go to on Saturdays, I had the privilege of doing that. My first 10K, now I've only been out of prison, which there's not a lot of places to run in prison. You're <laughs> locked up. <laughs> don't, don't get, it's kind of against what they want you to do yeah, is run. <laughs> there's no marathon tracks there. <laughs> and so uh, I'm running this 10K. I've been out of prison about a week. And I'm on the about five and a half mile mark. And I'm, I'm physically strong. Yeah. Lots of weightlifting, but no aerobics. Mm. And I'm physically strong and I'm running and people are just past me because I'm just, I'm trying not to walk. My, my, my yeah. man card was, and a pregnant lady came up beside me. And I mean pregnant. Her belly came past before her body. And she looked at me and she said, sir, are you okay? I said, I think so. She said, are you sure you don't need to walk? I said, no, ma'am, I don't. She goes, okay, well, I'll see you at the finish line. And this pregnant woman ran away from me. Oh, no. And uh, so it took me a few weeks before I got to where I could actually run a true 10K. Uh, but like when he visited hospitals, I went. And he showed me how to walk into a hospital room, how to be in there short, for a short period of time, pray for the person and get out. Because people in hospitals don't want to have somebody sitting around for two or three hours. They're, they don't right. feel good. Yeah. Uh, we, we did funerals. He showed me how to go to a house of somebody who lost a loved one, bring comfort into the home, minister to the grieving, how to conduct a funeral in a, in a way, different funerals. Uh, he took me on his family vacation. Wow. 
took me on motorcycle rides. When he traveled, he put me on an airplane with him, took me everywhere, had his brother land in Dallas and take me to preach my very first uh, church service uh, at Albuquerque, New Mexico at First Family Church. Pastor Ken George had the largest AG church. So my first four or five churches that I preached in were Marvin Gorman's church, oh Ken my. George, yeah. you know, Marvin Gorman had a church of 5,000. Yeah. So my exposure to ministry was mega church. Yeah. And then reality set in, and I realized those are the exceptions, not the <laughs> rules. And uh, and then at the end of six months, he made me a janitor. Wow. And uh, I worked and tried to do my work as under the Lord. I became the head of janitors in the maintenance department. And then we went to a building program there in Irving, Texas, right beside the TBN. And he made me his executive assistant to deal with the construction project, a, a multi-million dollar project. My dad grew up in construction or had a, a yeah. crane company there in Dallas. So I grew up around it. I'm willing to bet not not much of that job got behind. No, it didn't get behind. <laughs> no. And I was afraid of my pastor. He, you know, he was a loving guy, but he wasn't going to tolerate not getting it done. You seem like a guy that I go, if I didn't want a job to get behind, oh, no. I'm going to put a guy with Maury's background. Well, when they, you know, I was walking by one day and the drywall guys were taking a break and they were two days off schedule. I said, put your food up and go back to work. We're taking a break. I said, nope, not till you catch up. And I get up and go to work. They said, we're not going to do it. So then get off the property. You're fired. So wow. I fired the contractors, drywall guys. And I told him, I said, you're two days behind. We're not going to have people not, you know, we're not going to take 10 breaks a day. Yeah. I, I mean, they need to get their grind on. Yeah, I love that. And uh, it probably was a better way to do it than I did it. But, you know, that was my, you know, I've been trained by prison guards. I mean, what do you exactly. expect? I, mean, yeah. I didn't get to go to Bible school. I tried to go to Bible school, but they wouldn't let me in because I was an ex-convict. Come on. Yeah, that's true. But once I started giving a lot of money after church got big, they put me on the board. So the very Bible school wouldn't let me go there, put me on the board of directors. I thought, ain't this a hoot? Ain't turnabout's fair play, I yeah. guess. Still never did get to go to school. But anyway, so I guess you, I, I could You're the head not. of janitors. Now you're the executive assistant yeah. on the building project. And then uh, you know, my wife, you know, it, your life is made up of fun journey. And pastor told me, we're standing on the stage one Sunday night and the curtains are opening. It's back when the curtains were opening, big church, 2,500 people sitting mm -hmm. out in the audience. He said, Davis, you want to get married? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, who, 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 who in this church are you dating? I said, nobody. He said, well, why aren't you dating anybody? He said, do you know you hadn't given me a day off in three months? He said, well, it's time for you. You know, I've been waiting. Make sure you were in a good place spiritually, mentally, and you've made the transition. We need to find you a wife. He said, well, look out there. And I said, Pastor, none of these little church girls are going to marry me. I just got out of prison for committing a murder. They're not going to marry me. He said, well, where are you going to get a wife? I said, I'm going to go down to the red light district and get one of them and get them saved and and I'll bring him into ministry. He said, you're not doing that. You're not going to let your past control your future. That's so good. And I said, well, I don't know who to marry. He said, how about that girl on the piano? She's the most beautiful girl in the church. She has a master's degree in piano performance. She grew up in Pentecostal churches. She plays everything by ear or by professional music. And she'd make a great pastor's wife. And I said, well, pastor, she's engaged. He patted me on the chest and said, so? Let's go worship God. <laughs> Such a spiritual father. Yeah, I so, love that. And that's who I'm married. People say, did God speak to you about your wife? God's never spoken to anybody in the Bible about their wife. He only told two people to marry. Adam told Eve, and he told uh, Hosea to marry Gomer. Hmm. And uh, and he told Joseph, don't put, Eve away, uh, don't put Mary away. <laughs> and so the, the Bible says, he that finds a wife, and that word for finds means hunts. Wow. We're supposed to go find them. Go that's look really for them. Good. And... Uh, so, you know, I had to take her boyfriend out and tell him I was going to marry his fiance, And it, it, that was about a two or three month process to get rid of him. And, uh, 
I, I didn't want. I told him before I talked to her because I did, I believe we ought to walk in transparency. Yeah, and truth. Right, yeah, right. Don't be doing something. That, if you have to hide it, it's not right. Exactly. So, um, but we got married, and, and the day we were getting married, he said, "Marty, when you come back from your honeymoon, honeymoon, you're the youth pastor of the church." And uh, the parents had asked for me to take over the youth ministry from the youth pastor. They believed the kids would respond to me. Now that you're talking about a miracle, you've got a man that's been out of prison a year and a half. Mm. It's a janitor. Doesn't have AG credentials. What's no? Nobody knows I don't have credentials. I would already been on TBN, PTL. I uh, spoken at Bob Tilton's church. I don't. I God had opened so many doors, wow. and uh, so we got married. Came back and became the youth pastors. And a year later, God blessed us with triplets: Gabrielle, Danielle, Galen. Pastor said, "Mari, God is accelerating your ministry." Mm. So we had an incredible revival there in Dallas in the youth ministry. I had a, a man gave me a TV show right before Jimmy Swaggart. And we had thousands of teenagers around uh, Dallas, Texas, wow. coming to Christ. And then God called me to be an evangelist. We traveled for about three years, and then we went to Nashville to Pioneer Church, took Cornerstone Church when it just had a handful of people, and uh, built $53 million worth of buildings on 40 or 50 acres. I forget how many acres there were at the <laughs> end of it. Uh, planted eight other churches. And, uh, and then in 2018, I wanted to pass a baton, not a cane. And so, so I transitioned the church and uh, went into ministry. And I really do coaching and consulting. I yeah. work with pastors. My job is just to help other pastors make it through what I believe are the most difficult, stressful, trying times uh, pastors have ever had in our lifetime Yeah, uh, in America. There may, I'm, I don't want to talk about pastors in third world countries that are being put to death and stuff. But right. in America, the COVID crisis, the political division, the blue state, red state, male, female, woke, cancel, uh, constant news source. Uh, we live in a, a, in a time that in the last decade, people have started making statements that really are deceptive. Jesus said, be careful that the light that is in you is not darkness. Mm. And when I hear somebody say, well, my truth, I'm thinking that's not truth, that's an opinion. That's right. Jesus is truth. He's the way, the truth, and life. Yep. The spirit of truth and the word of truth. Yep. And that's the truth with a capital T. Anything yep. else has got a small T to it. Yep. And to put that on equal with the big T is really self-deception. But you're having to pastor in that environment. And so it makes it very challenging. And uh, if you were to ask me the secret, and I'm going to give you the one thing that I did. I told you who I had in my life, my yep, pastor. Exactly. But I'm going to tell you Maury's key to go from here or from there to here Okay. when you can't get from there to here. You need favor. If you were to go to the book of Luke and read where Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man and go back up in the chapter, earlier he grew in wisdom and stature. Okay. He did not, he, he did not grow in favor. Hmm. He's in the temple. Mary and Joseph have lost their kid for three days. I mean, we'd lock them up today. They'd be on the news. But yeah. they go back. Jesus in the temple, freaking the Pharisees out. Nobody, he, he knows I'm the son of God. Tells Joseph, did you not know I must be about my father's business? So here's a 12-year-old boy looks at his stepdad. Yeah who's a carpenter who flunked out of rabbi school, mm -hmm. said, I'm the most spiritual person on the planet, Dad. But the next verse, then he went and submitted himself to Mary and Joseph. So good. Just because you're the most spiritual person in the room doesn't mean you're the authority of the room. I've never believed I was the most spiritual person in any room I've ever preached in. Mm. I had Sister Blythe in my church. I don't know if you remember Sister Blythe. Yeah. I hired her at 80, told her I'd pay her till she passed away. She lived to be 102. I had no idea she's going to live <laughs> 22 years. But she started serving Jesus at 16 years of age and passionately 
pursued, knowledge of the word, prayer life. I never thought I was more spiritual than her. Mm. She's been doing it longer, and she's never stopped exercising, digging in. Mm. So, uh, so I read that, and I got to thinking, God, what's my problem? He said, you don't like authority. But Jesus, after he submitted to the appointed authority, because all authority is established by God, grew in favor. I looked up favor in the Vines Expository Dictionary, and it says grace that may be earned. Come on. Yeah. Most people don't understand there's a difference in saving grace and all the other graces. Yeah. Most of the other graces come from obedience, and they're called favor. From an act you do, unlock something. So I thought, man, I'm going to go study submission to authority because God told me your problem is you don't like rules. Mm. So I go and I find Moses talking to the burning bush. Now he knows he's talking to God. I'm the God of your father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Take sandals off your feet. Place your, stand his, place your standing as holy ground. Go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He doesn't do that. He goes back to the village where he's been living or the tribe he's been with and asks the patriarch, the authority over the tribe, Jethro, for permission to go do what God said. How many people would say, God said it, I don't need a man's approval to do it? Anybody that says that has not understood spiritual truth. Wow. And they always end up in deception at some point. They may make it right 90, but when they miss it, they really it's a train wreck. That's right. So you go to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in jail. They, they have convictions about we're not going to drink the wine. We're not going to eat that food. That's the wrong food for us based on our practice of our religion, our Jewish religion. And so they tell the jailer, we would like your permission to not drink the king's wine or eat his tasty food. Wow. They didn't just rebel and say, I'm not doing that. I have convictions. They submitted to the authority, the people that enslaved them. You're talking about a different spirit. Yeah. You go all the way to the New Testament. Peter sees a vision up on the rooftop, and the Lord says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's an idiot. He's not so, Lord. I mean, he's telling God, I don't <laughs> care. Why. You know, hey, God, you forgot what your rules are. I right. mean, and God, just do what I told you to do. Paul is caught up to third heaven. If you read the story, neither one of them went and preached what they saw or experienced until they went to Jerusalem and submitted their vision and their experience to James and the council at Jerusalem. And then they were told, this is how you present. That's so good. Based on the word. Now, here's the one that really challenged me. And I've had preachers get upset when I say what I'm going to say. So if you get blowback, this is, you know, on people that... Probably ought to be mad at me, not you. <laughs> Jesus is at the wedding of Cana. Mm -hmm. They're running out of wine. Mary doesn't want the man to be dishonored. She said, hey, Jesus, they're running out of wine. His words are so clear. Woman, it's not my time. Huh. And then she tells the people, as if she totally ignores him, <laughs> hey, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, she didn't tell him what to do. Right. But she put it on him. Yep. I'm your mother. I don't want my friend embarrassed. Right. Now, you can say I'm not going to do anything. You're the son of God, but I'm your mother. I don't want my friend to be embarrassed. So Jesus turns the water to wine. So here's the, here's the dilemma. Did he misspeak, it's not my time, or did he do the first miracle because it's more important to be under spiritual authority than in the will of God? Wow. I came to the conclusion that unless it's a direct violation of the word, a moral issue, uh, a denying Jesus issue. If it's a timing issue, 
If it's a position issue, don't take that job yet. Don't go there yet. It's not time for you to do that yet. You stay in submission to authority. Maury Davis is where he is today because I submitted myself to the word. I submitted myself to the spirit and I submitted myself to Pastor J. Don George. That is so good. That is so good. That is a lost art in our generation. Well, especially in the Pentecostal world. Yeah. Well, the Lord is leading me. Who confirmed that? Well, I went to talk to two other guys that thought it was a good, are they your pastor? And that's why choosing your pa- pastors don't choose their sheep. Sheep choose their pastor. Yeah. So you better choose somebody that's got spiritual sensitivity, loves God, loves you, loves pastoring more than preaching. One of the lost arts in your generation, especially the millennials right behind you, is pastoral care. Mm-hmm. You know, there, uh, apostles preach, prophets pe- preach, evangelists preach, pastors preach. But pastoring is about equipping people, which means taking broken people and making them whole. I believe that that ought to have equal time given to it each week as sermon preparation for Sunday. Mm. You affect more people, spiritual relationship with Jesus on Sunday. Yeah. But you develop them for their calling Monday through Friday. Yeah, right. I think preaching is the icing on the cake. But it's what most dudes want to do. There's been a disconnect in the system, I would say, in mm-hmm. the way that, that young guys are developed. That used to be that you would come out of Bible school. Now, some guys still do this. But it used to be you'd come out of Bible school, you'd go, you'd be a children's pastor or a youth pastor, and you would hone your skills while you submitted those skills to someone else. When I was in Memphis under a guy you know, Dr. J.D. Middlebrook, and he ran dudes out of the ministry. Like It was like he had six <laughs> youth pastors in the five years before me. And and like these guys were like working at Hampton Inn. Like these guys were like, I don't even want to, I don't want to do this anymore. And I got there and I had a different mindset. I come from the hood. Like for me, I grew up in the inner city, so there is a pecking order and there is a submission that is life or death. Mm-hmm. If I don't submit to that guy, I either be... I, I better either be ready to take his position or face the consequences. Mm-hmm. And so when I went into ministry, I was like, bro, this is my pastor. Are you kidding? Because I didn't like grow up in church, so I didn't have all the baggage where it was like, I'd be, I, hadn't, I didn't have like church wounds. And I get it. Some people have those. But when I went in, I was like, I work for J.D. Middlebrook, who incidentally, by the way, he, he was like old school. He taught me stuff. He was intentional. And he corrected me. First of all, he taught, he was the first guy to teach me how to tie a tie. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know how to tie a tie today without him. But when I got to Raleigh Assembly of God in Memphis, Tennessee, at the, at the back end, he, was on, he wasn't on the back nine. He was on the back, he was on his last couple holes. <laughs> I had the determination and so did Sonny. We, we work for JD and Joy Middlebrook. Period. Pastor, what do you want me to do? And he used to do stuff that would make people mad that now I look at it and I go, I wish I would have done this as a senior pastor. I, I didn't have a problem with it, but some guys had a problem. We used to have to sign in and sign out every day. What time you get here? Every time you leave, you have to sign out, say where you're going. You have to say what time you're going to get back, when you, like, what time you got back. And then, and then every week we had to fill out 
an accountability form. We had to fill out what is it that you did all week. Is that oppressive or was he trying to teach me habits of what it is that, that a pastor isn't just all about the show? So I was like formed by him. And then when, when he retired from the ministry and then passed on, I went to work for Pastor Buntain in Tacoma. And mm-hmm. Pastor Buntain used to would send plants into my services and listen to my messages. And then Pastor Buntain would come back and talk to me about my messages. And I remember him talking about, he said, man, you're a great preacher, but you say too much. He said, just don't try to tell him everything you know at once. Leave him wanting some more. He would say, literally, Pastor, everything that Pastor Buntain said to me that I repeat to our people, my kids, my wife, none of it is positive. I told you one of them. He got, first time I preached for him on a Sunday, I wore all black. He said, ooh, black is slimming. You should wear it always. (laughs) Like, well, dang. And so he just, I went one time, first time he let me preach on it, that same service, first time he let me preach on a Sunday, I had an illustration that I had gotten out of a book. He used to have a library and we would go in and you could borrow a book. And I came in, it was Sunday morning. I said, Pastor, I'm trying to tell a story. It's out of such and such a book. And I can't remember the story. I want to like quote it. I don't want to like paraphrase it. Do you know where that book is? He goes, yes. I said, can you tell me? He goes, no. I go, why? He said, because if you're not ready by now, you'll never be ready. You should have been had that story. And so it was just like little things like that that I think guys have jumped steps in that, right? Like it used mm-hmm. to be you'd come out and you would youth pastor church. And now I look at these guys who come out and everybody wanted to be a church planner. So everybody was going to plant a church on their own. It was going to be independent. They wanted to walk away from this movement or that movement. doesn't matter what movement they were a part of. They wanted to walk out from under that covering. And our guest last week, Pastor Lonnie, uh, Keen said, uh, anytime somebody steps out from under covering, there's a failure that's inevitable. And I look at you with Pastor George, to the day he died, you were, I mean, you're still loyal to him. He's still your pastor. Absolutely. You call him that. And and I think uh, what's interesting about you when you hear your story is you, you drop these nuggets along the way. Like when you talked about Tommy Joe lived a life that was godly in front of you, yet he was incarcerated. And I think sometimes we fail to realize that your environment doesn't determine your godliness. Oh, you know, one of the things that shocked me when I was working with men at Cornerstone uh, and the church is growing like crazy, and I would say, brother, you need to stop talking like that. You need to clean your mouth up. Well, pastor, you don't understand my environment that I'm in at work. And I thought, look at me. Look at me. I was in prison with 2,000 men on my prison unit. I was picking cotton with people. Golly. I was with people that are the, they're at the lowest part of human life as far as their moral values, their thought processes, addictions, demon-possessed people, psychotic people, perverts, rapists, murderers, dope dealers, pimps. I mean, you get 2,000 criminals, you've got one of everything and and more than one of most. Yeah. So there's never an hour Probably, in all reality, never a 30-minute time span if you're when people are talking. I'm not talking about at night when you're sleeping. That you are out of range of curse words. Yeah. And I'm talking about... Real ones. Yeah. Vulgar, <laughs> vulgar, 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 vulgar. And, and, and so in that environment, and I told the story of how I quit cussing, 
But the bottom line is during my eight and a half years in prison, as I drew near to God and put on the mind of Christ, I never let that come back in. To say my environment controls my spirit so is to good. say the world is bigger than God. Yep. And so what it is is you're you're coddling your flesh. Stop cussing. And when I hear people curse, and I know this is probably judgmental, I'm thinking you just don't think at a very high level. Now I know mm-hmm. I hear some comedians that use curse words, and yeah. I, know I know they're brilliant thinkers. But have you ever noticed as they get older, like an Eddie Murphy? Yep. They clean themselves up because they don't want their kids to hear that. It's interesting. You know, if you don't want your kids to hear it when you're old, maybe you shouldn't have recorded it when you were young. Yep. Because his kids are going to hear it. Bill Cosby, forget his his latest thing. Bill Cosby started out as, you know, I knew Bill Cosby as America's dad until I stopped at a pilot truck stop one time, driving through South Texas from Houston over to San Antonio, and I bought a Bill Cosby comedy CD. Never bought one before. Yeah. Put it in, and it was when he was a first beginning custod- uh, a comedian. Yep. He was filthy mouth. I really? sailed it out the window. Come on. I, I threw it out the window. I thought, I don't want that in my car. Uh, and, you know, there's no reason. You, every joke you can tell can be told without cuss words. Yes. Most movies can be made without curse words. Yeah. You don't have to have that trivial sex scene. You don't have to have that, that F-bomb drop in the yep. middle of something. You just don't have to have that to make the movie. And, and, you know, Michael Jr. is a comedian, comes out of Gateway Church. So funny. He's had an HBO special, he's and he's so a godly funny. man. Yeah. And I had, him pre, I had him do my Sunday morning service, and my thing, he's going for 20 minutes. People are screaming. <laughs> and, and they thought, well, this is just going to be a comedy show. And when he turned the corner and went towards the altar call, Come he on. packed the altars out. Wow. And, uh, and he does it without curse words. And so when I see men say, well, you know, that's my environment. Yeah. Uh, I came out of the hood. I, I came out of a broken thing. Uh, I'm church hurt. Here, here's the truth. There are no human beings on this planet that are not going to be hurt by other human beings. Right. None. So good. And so you can get hurt at school. You can get hurt at home. You can get hurt in the neighborhood. You can get hurt at the YMCA. Yeah. You can get hurt at the women's bridge club, the yeah. men's rotary club. Uh, you can get you can get hurt at church. So saying I'm church hurt, like it's a different kind of hurt, yeah, is really not. It's not thinking at the right level. Everybody gets church hurt. We we don't deny that that happens because people are people. Yeah. So the problem is not am I going to get hurt? Mm-hmm. The problem is am I going to win or lose? Yeah. Uh, you you've had a rough life, and you know that I had a rough life in prison. And even when I boxed golden gloves in high school or took Taekwondo or the hand-to-hand combat with the military academy, uh, I when I rode bulls in high school, <laughs> I, I rode on the rodeo team. So I played It tw- just gets deeper. I, it's I, just I, layer upon layer. I love that's it. That's why I did a rodeo in Cornerstone. Uh, but I played 12 years of football, first grade through 12th grade. Wow. It, yeah. That's what you do in Texas. You in play Texas. ball. And you just know, I'm going to hit this guy. It's going to hurt. Yeah. I'm going to box this guy. I'm going to beat him up, but he's going to hit me, and it's going to hurt. Yeah. I, we're going to throw it down, yep. and I'm going to win, but it's going to hurt. Yeah. So the, the, the true challenge to being a champion is how much pain can you endure Come on. to be a winner. So good. Versus being a victim. Yep. And, uh, you know, I've been hurt. I've been hurt by people. I have people that still reject my ministry. They say things to me or my kids that 
uh, it, it shames me, and I have to battle through the shame and the guilt. Yeah, because you can't live there; it yeah. doesn't do any good. Right. So when I see people say I'm church hurt, okay, how do I help you get over it? Yeah. Well, I'm never going to church again. Are you going to go to you're going to go to hell because somebody said something to you? Wow. Because if you get out of church and you're wounded, that wound of offense is going to turn into a root of bitterness in your life. And by your bitterness, the Bible says many are uh, polluted. Many yeah. are infected. So I don't have the ability, I, I have the ability, I don't have the, the privilege of going from being offended to bitter because how many other people will I destroy their faith? Yeah. And we have got to live bigger than our pain. The, the apostles... They sucked it up. They did. And, uh, you know, before the Holy Spirit, Peter was a chicken. Yep. He was willing to be crucified upside down at the end. None yep. of them backed up. And that's the part of why I'm so radical about being filled with the Spirit of God. Uh, the Spirit of God will give you strength you will not find in your flesh. Yeah. That's why Paul said, I pray you'd be strengthened in the inner man. And so, you know, as we work with pastors and love on people, uh, all I do anymore is work with pastors and try to help guys get yeah. through tough times. And uh, and just so you know, people say, what are you really? Well, I'm a recovering pastor. <laughs> and I'm not done recovering, yeah. but I'm not quitting. I love that. I think people would categorize church hurt specifically because they expect more from someone who's in a church, which is interesting and ironic at the same time because they're in church not expecting more of themselves. We expect mm. more of others than we expect of ourselves. And so when you look at this idea of cussing, the cussing to me is a symptom. It's a symptom of something that else that's going on, some wound somewhere else. My dad, he wasn't a, a believer. And yet when I was a kid and a teenager and we would cuss, he'd say, that ain't nothing but lazy talk. That's all that is. You need to clean your mouth up because it takes more mind to think ahead about what you're going to say. He said, when you cuss, it's because you didn't think fast enough or far enough to determine what you're going to say. You're just saying whatever comes to your mind in the moment. And so I think for people who have foul mouths, including pastors who, who have foul mouths there, it's this, um, it's this thing that, that can't be hidden. And so it's easy to identify that. But when you, you said a few minutes ago that if you have to hide something, then it's wrong. And, mm -hmm. and there are some people who are doing things that wouldn't necessarily be wrong in their in their mindset, but why are they hiding it? Why is it that if you don't think it's wrong, why are you hiding it? If you're hiding it, subconsciously, it's obvious that you think that it's wrong. I write a devotional, text devotional every morning to a, a group of men and almost never get responses. I don't get thumbs up, which is fine because I don't want my phone on a big group text. It's bing, bing, bing. So almost never do I get responses. But this morning I wrote one about the power of pornography. I've never been addicted to porn. I've hardly even, I can honestly say I've hardly even looked at porn in my life. It's like it was never a thing. Now I've never seen a chocolate cake that I could let pass me by, but I have my own issues. But I, when I did this thing about porn, I'm talking, Pastor, like I'm talking 60 seconds. Katz was sending me text messages. I was like, I feel like you haven't even had time to read the whole thing. And you're sending me responses talking about, I struggle with porn. I'm addicted to porn. What do I do? What do I need to do? And we, you know, getting these text things back and forth. And so 
I say that to say, it's interesting to me the number of guys who are in ministry who are hiding things. Mm -hmm. And they're doing things in the secret place. And when I, you said something right at the beginning of your story and I wrote it down and I I wanted to come back to it. And this is the moment is there you sat in the Irving city jail and, and realized they had a murder weapon. They had, you know, you had been dead to rights. Mm -hmm. What did it feel like to be caught? Well, you need to understand my mindset. Uh, I told one of your ladies yesterday whose name was Mandy. Okay. There are things I remember about the arrest. Okay. And it's most of that stuff is almost like if you've seen movies where people are regaining their memories. Yep. They have a flash of something. Yeah. But no context. Uh, I'm driving in the car and the police are chasing me around. And the song Mandy's playing, Oh Mandy, You Came and You Gave Without Take. And I remember Mary Manilow's song in the middle of all wow. this. I'm thinking... They're going to shoot me. That's going to be the last song I listen to. But they finally get me, and they're arresting me. And I'm in the back of the police car. And I think in my mind, Batman would get out of this. I mean, I was that messed up. I'm, <laughs> I mean, so I'm thinking, how would Batman get out of it? Oh, my gosh. And, and so, you know, it wasn't like I thought, you're not Batman. Yeah. And uh, and he's a, he's a cartoon character. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was just that messed up. Uh, when... Uh, I told you when I came to sobriety, it was after the man had hung himself and the young man had committed suicide. Yeah. And I was sitting there, and I realized I'm hopeless. That was when I raised, prayed my first prayer. Hmm. Uh, but that first day in jail, I stayed in trouble all day long. I, one of the police officers, excuse me, one of the police officers uh, kept slapping me in the head while they were questioning me. Huh. So I bit him on his kidney roll. <laughs> Threw it. Well, he, they had my hands handcuffed to the chair. His name was Jimbo, and I bit him, and he drugged me. Are you chair. talking about his love hand, like the fat on his side? Yeah, he was a fat. I've never heard it called a kidney roll. He was a fat boy. And uh, and he kept slapping me while my hands are handcuffed, one to oh each gosh. arm on the chair. And the, the guys questioned me across the table, and he kept walking by. I said, answer the question. He kept slapping me. I said, quit slapping me. Finally, he's got there beside me, and he was, yeah, and I just bit him. And when he jumped, well, it went through it. It went through his shirt uh, into his skin. Gosh. I just, bought, I just bit a chunk out of him. He broke the skin on no. his kidney roll. No, I made Mike Tyson's ear chew look like uh, an appetizer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and uh, he's rolling on the floor, screaming, "Oh God, he bit a hole in me! He bit a hole!" Oh in my me. gosh! And uh, and then later they served me. The little guard came to me and he said, "I'm gonna." Here's your chicken pot pie, and they'd made me a little microwave chicken pot pie or whatever they did. It was burned on the inside when I stuck the plastic fork in it. It's still hot ice on the inside. And I called him back over. I said, this is burned on the outside and frozen on the inside. And he said, uh, if you didn't, if you wanted good food, you should come in here. I said, come here. Well, just as he got to the bars, I just crammed it through the bars in his face. <laughs> so the next thing I know, they're opening the cell doors, and they're coming in there to, to beat on me a little bit. And... Uh, when I came to, I had knots all over the top of my head. I mean, they whacked on me for a while. So th- those are just moments. Yeah. Uh, you know, you think you're going to get out of it, and you think it's going to go away. But when the drugs wear off and the alcohol wears off and the darkness of demonic work is gone, the reality of hopelessness uh, is horrible. You know, when you're hopeless, you have no dreams, you have no future. Yeah. 
Let me ask you an extension question. Okay. If you can verbalize the day that you walked out of prison, what did you feel like then? Let me give you context. In June of 1983, the governor said to Pastor Don George, I'm never signing a parole for him. Wow. He has to do it all the time. They quit sending this up here. So in June, I laid on a concrete floor, five foot wide, nine foot long cell, and I said, God, this is not fair. I'm watching people that have committed two murders just got out. I, I mean, the system is not pure. And I've been serving God. I've been doing right. I can't handle it anymore. My parents are brokenhearted. And God spoke to me, have faith in me, Mark 11, 23, 22 and 23. And, uh, and that word, then my spirit raised me up. August the 23rd, two months later, 1983, they had an overcrowded problem in the state of Texas, and they created a lottery-type system in the computers. They woke me up at 3 o'clock in the morning and said, you're going home today. And I thought it was just a guard being cruel. And, mm -hmm. and I said, no. And he showed me my papers. They took me downstairs. I took my Bible. Wow. And my clothes. Left everything there. Went and got on the chain bus, went to the Walls Unit in Huntsville, Texas, which is where they process all inmates getting out of the Texas penal system. Went through. They gave me a time served. If I'd gotten out in June, I'd been on parole for 11 and a half years. Wow. Time served. You're done. Look at God. And uh, I'd never been able to travel with Pastor or do all the things I did. Had I done that. You didn't even have a PO? When you got, did you not have a? No. Good night. I was free. I'm done. So that I said... <laughs> So they said, follow this guard. So we go past the electric chair room. He said, you know, you really should have been in there. Why don't you go sit in there and see what it feels like? I said, I'm not going to do that. He said, oh, you can trust me not to pull this switch. I said, uh, right. I'm not sitting in the electric chair. I looked at him. No, that's a horrible thought. So I follow him. He takes me all the way out of the prison, and I'm walking. He said, what are you doing? I said, they told me to follow you. I'm so institutionalized, I've not thought. He says, it's illegal for you to harass a prison guard as an ex-convict. If I was you, I'd go the other way. And down the street is an Army and Navy store. They'll give you $3 for your prison uniform. They'll cash that $200 check. Wow. And they'll tell you how to get to the bus station. And you need to get out of town. So I went down there. And by the time I got done, I had about $150 left. I just bought a pair of jeans, socks, tennis shoes, uh, and a golf uh, shirt yeah. type thing, a polo. So I'm going down the street. I passed the little Assembly of God church that the pastor used to come out and preach. So I stuck $20 under the door. Come that was my tithe. Man. Yeah, you that's my tithe. And then I went past a McDonald's. I got a Big Mac and a milkshake. <laughs> Bro. Yeah. And then I went to the bus station, Greyhound bus station, and bought a ticket to, Irv to Dallas, Texas. My parents live in Irving suburb. So we get on the bus, and these guys go, man, let's go to the back. We got some dice. We got some cards. Man, we'll, we'll play a game. I thought, you're already planning on going back to prison. I said, the front of the bus. Yeah. I'm not going back there. So I get off at the bus station in Dallas, and I get a pay phone, and I call my parents. You know, it had gone from a dime to a quarter, I think. <laughs> and uh, I called my parents home, and it just rang and rang and rang. So I, I didn't know what to do, so I called. The, I, had, I had my parents' phone number and Calvary Temple's phone number. Wow. So I called Calvary Temple to ask for Pastor George, and they said, well, he's out of town with his family. I realized I don't know how to get home. Wow. So I'm sitting there, and um, I thought, what would my dad do? 
I thought he'd called Davis Motor Crane Service that he's an owner of. <laughs> and so I called and got Uncle Raymond on the phone. He was my dad's partner. And I said, Raymond, I'm at the I'm at the bus stop. I need somebody to take me home. He goes, I said, I can't find my parents. He said, they're at the lake house with your pastor. They were all at my parents' lake house. And uh, I said, well, I need to get home. I'm at, he said, Maury, you just got, your, did you escape? They were worried I ran, broke out of jail. Mm. And I finally convinced him. So he sent my cousin Chris down to pick me up, and they dropped me by the house in Irving. And, and he, Chris, let me out. He said, man, I'm so glad you're home. Let's get together. I got to go back. And I've got some work to do this afternoon. So he drops me off. All I got is my Bible. And it dawns on me, I don't have a key. So I have to go in the backyard. My dad hung a key on a tree in every house we ever had. <laughs> I found the key, got in, took a shower with real, like, uh, dial soap or, yep. or our spring. And alone. Yeah, 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 alone. Yeah, <laughs> first shower alone. And then my brother came to pick me up. He was up there. And so when I got to the lake house, uh, it was just an incredibly emotional experience. And uh, that day, sitting with my mom, my dad, my brother's sister, Pastor George and his family, uh, pretty emotional. Yeah. I think what's interesting is... It sounds like when you got caught, you didn't have remorse. No, I didn't. But when you got set free, you found out who you had in your corner, the people that were going to surround you who who had been with you through the process of this journey. And when you shared your story yesterday, you had said that you said to your attorney, you didn't want Jesus, you wanted him to get you out of jail. And he said, no. You said, why? He said, because you're not ready. And it took you eight and a half years in a five by nine to get yourself to a place where you are ready. And in the middle of the night, he comes and sets you free. And it's fascinating that you said, I realized I didn't know how to get home. And I think about the guy or the girl who may be listening to this, who's in the middle of whatever it is they're in the middle of. It may not be a high-speed chase where they think that they're Batman and they they can get out of whatever situation that it's in. But we all, when we're in the middle of whatever situation that we're in, we think they're never going to catch up to us. We're never going to get caught. And we're, we're bigger than the situation that we're in. But the thing about it is that sin, it's scriptural. Be sure your sin will find you out. Like you're going to get caught. And I've, I noticed when a lot of guys or girls who are in ministry who have a moral failure or some kind of a failure and they get caught, it takes them longer to recover than people who will just stop, realize. You know it's wrong. You've felt the power of the Holy Spirit. You've heard the voice of the Holy Spirit, yet in your pride, you've just determined that either you figure you're not going to get caught or you don't know how to get home. Mm. And so I look at a guy like you and I go, you're just a phone call away. I mean, you're this, you're a big deal. And I know you're humble. You're like so humble. And that's been the most refreshing thing to me because I, I told Sonny last night, I said, you know, sometimes you meet your heroes and you're disappointed. And sometimes you meet your heroes and you're, it's like beyond what you thought. Like I, over the last few days, have just, it's just been beyond the moon to me to be to be in the presence of a person who you've looked up to, and to realize that this you're not full of yourself, you're <laughs> humble, you're kind, 
you live a life of deferment where um, this is why you say backward. I wish I, I wish somebody would talk bad about you around me now. Not that they ever have before, but I know everybody's got haters. And I look at it like this, man. Let uh, me tell you something. Yeah. Never forget this. Yeah. Haters don't know how much they know, they need you. Mm, that's so good. To have that level of emotion towards another human being indicates a need for them that you don't understand yet. Wow. Just nuggets. They're just you're just dropping them. They're like they're like little it's like we're in an Easter egg drop for the last <laughs> 3 days. And so I say all that to say uh, of course if you're listening to this and you're in a situation where you're in the middle of something. You you didn't even know how you got there. This boy, I had this boy that texted me today, and he said, "Man, I'm I'm into pornography, and I don't even know how I got into it." Right? He's just so deep into it, he doesn't remember how he got into it, and now he doesn't know how to get out of it. And so, there's people who are listening to this, and it it's everything from. I don't know how I got. Like this is gonna sound so dumb. Like I don't know how I got overweight. Like I do. But I don't know. It's so progressive, right? Like when we moved to Wisconsin um, 10 years ago, I was super fit. Like I was fit. Mm-hmm. I worked out every day. I exercised. I ate right. It counted every calorie. I had an app on my phone that I counted every calorie. Then I moved to Wisconsin and I discovered Wisconsin food. And I discovered I liked Wisconsin food. And you know what I liked? I liked Wisconsin food more than I liked discipline. And so I walked away from discipline 10 years ago, and now I look at it and I wonder, as a guy where you come from would say, why my britches is so tight? Well, they're tight because I lacked discipline, because I, because I ran from accountability, because I didn't have someone in my life who would say to me, bro, why are you letting yourself get fat? Or somebody, if somebody has bad marriage, you don't have somebody in your life that says, bro, why are you talking to your wife like that? Mm-hmm. Why are you disrespecting your kids? Why are you wasting your money? Why do you not have any money, but you got a new bass boat? Well, I got it for $109 a month. Well, guess what? You're broke and now you're in debt too. And so it's this idea of who do we have in our life who, who, we, can, who we can call when life hits the fan. And so obviously, if you're listening to this, we would love for you to connect with us and reach out to us. That's really why we started this whole thing called the Exchange Collaborative that is there to help restore pastors. Mm -hmm. But I would also say, and not to speak for you, and if I'm wrong, you just say it after I make this comment. If you're listening to this and you need a guy who has been through it to the worst, who has recovered, walked the right path, and became more successful than most of us could ever imagine and still remained humble, I promise you that Pastor Maury Davis is a person who would be there to help you and to pick you up. And he's just a he's just a phone call away or an email away. And so can you give them your website, how to see what it is you're doing? Yeah, it's maurydavis.com. And my email is maury at maurydavis.com. M-A-U-R-Y at M-A-U-R-Y-D-A-V-I-S.com. I love and that. Anybody can contact me. I love it. Well, yeah. Pastor, I love you, and I'm. I well, what you've done here is miraculous, Pastor, thank you. and it's been an honor to be with you Thanks. the last few days. I can't wait to have you back, and I can't wait to have you back on the podcast, and just to be more in my life, and Pastor Sonny's life, and Pastor Barry's life, and mm-hmm. all the staff here. You just, um, I have, I have like spoken prophetically over 
every, I'm not a prophetic person by nature. Um, number one, I think, you know, Baba says not many have fathers, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you're going to become a, you're going to become a surrogate father for me and for the staff here. I love you. And I'm, I'm grateful for you. I see what and who we can become. And I believe that God is going to restore what the enemy has tried to destroy in your life. Amen. And I can tell you, you're the generation that will do greater than the previous generation. And you're doing it. Thank you. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you enjoyed this teaching and this interview, just share it, post it subscribe to this podcast, rate us, all of that stuff that you're supposed to do. But we love you. If you're in the midst of it, reach out to us, reach out to Pastor Maury, but do not try to do this alone. There is a rise after the fall. Hi, friends. It's Sunny again. And I just want to say, Sean and I appreciate your faithful listening. And we hear all the time that many of you are sharing this. In fact, we've had a few people say, I tell everybody I know, specifically other pastors and leaders about this podcast. And so we may have shared in our early season two episode about the story of getting a retreat center that we're now going to call the reserve, uh, 20 acres, multiple houses, and the ability to house pastors and leaders, their families. We're going to basically say we're hosting the hurting. We're hosting the betrayed. We're restoring the betrayer. Uh, and so now we have a campus to do that on a, a 20 acre property to do that on as well as we'll continue to bring people into Green Bay and we provide um, help in the finances for that and the housing for that at times as needed. Also, we'll continue to go to people. We've done that over the last couple of years, flown directly to couples in crisis. That's been an ongoing thing that Sean and I, Pastor Becky, Pastor Barry have done. But what I wanted to ask you is that um, because this retreat center is $1.8 million, which actually for 20 acres, a massive house, other housing, uh, it's really reasonable. We just happened to find it in a great location. And the person who's selling it to us has a ministry heart. He's on the board of the church that we interned at coming right out of Bible college. It's just crazy, the God story. But we need to get $600,000 as the down payment. Now he's going to spread that over the first year. So it's 54,000 a month. Whew. Then after that, the 1.2 million that we will finance with him, those payments will start and that's in the 70 some hundred dollars. So $7,000 a month plus utilities and expenses, but that's much more palpable than 54,000 a month. But for this first year, we're grateful that we didn't have to come up with 600,000 to even begin work on the property. We already own it. We're already doing construction. But what I would ask you is if you would consider, and you may say, it's me. I have, you know, $100,000 put away for our church that we are going to start construction on something. Or you may say, I have $1.8 million at the church I lead and we were breaking ground. But I feel, <laughs> this is the crazy thing. I've heard some crazy stories about pastors who after having the money or praying for the money 
and they get it for something God's having them do. God told them to give it away. But then God exceeded their expectation and they came back and had eightfold, ninefold. I know of a church in Texas, this just happened. Uh, They gave a million dollars they had raised to break ground on a new property. And someone had been at this conference with them and they had a roof that had caved in and it was a million dollars to repair it. And God told him, give the million dollars. Well, he did. And within a few weeks, they had a company come to them and offer them money for the land and to give them land they owned. And they basically were given about $8 million from their million dollars they gave away. So I just know that when Sean and I even have given $1,200, which was our first big gift when we were first married at a conference and God told us give everything. And we had $1,201 in our bank account, which was a ton for us. It was like our savings. We gave it, we got home and we had a check in our mailbox for $1,250. Now we made $49 on that, but it increased our faith. We made a lot of return on our faith and that investment and knowing God will never ask us to give that he doesn't have a huge plan. So I take this time to say, you might be the one that says, we're going to give you 1.8. You'll never have to worry about money as you do this ministry. You might say, we're going to give you 600,000 for the down payment so that you don't have to stress for the first year at 54,000 a pop as you build it out. Or you might say, we're going to give monthly or we have something else in mind. Thank you for considering it. Thank you for stepping out in faith and thank you for being a faithful listener to this. We appreciate you.